Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so turn to Proverbs chapter 31, and there's a reason for this, okay? Proverbs chapter 31, and normally this is a Mother's Day sermon that you preach to make moms feel guilty that they're not, you know, be a better mother, um, but that's, that's not... <clears throat> But what I want to show you is in Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10, you've got the godly woman who fears the Lord, okay? So Proverbs chapter 31, starting in verse 10, this may be something you haven't read in a while, but um, at the very, it's very interesting, at the end of the Proverbs, it, it ends with the woman that fears the Lord. So let's go ahead and read that. An excellent... Wife, who can find an excellent wife? You may want to circle the word excellent. You can find one. She found one. All of you husbands that have it, you're like, I, I found one. <clears throat> you better say it. <laughs> so you might want to circle that word excellent. An excellent wife, who can find? Or whatever translation your Bible has of that word. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands to the, hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor, reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. And beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. Now, why do I read Proverbs 31 about the godly woman? What does it say in verse 10? An excellent, does anybody have a different translation besides excellent? Does maybe anyone say noble? Virtuous. virtuous. What does yours say, Michelle? Noble. noble, virtuous, excellent. In the Hebrew, the word means worthy, noble, or of substance. A noble, worthy, excellent woman <laughs> of substance. 
Now, here's what I'm going to teach you a little bit about the Hebrew Bible that you don't get in your English Bibles. The, the order of books is different in your Hebrew Bibles than in your English Bible. Okay? So if we were all good um, Jewish rabbis and we were reading from the Tanakh, from their version of the Old Testament, the order is different. Proverbs comes right before Ruth in the Hebrew Bible. So how does the book of Proverbs end? With a description of a godly woman. How does the book of Ruth begin? It's the story of a godly woman. Or an excellent woman. Or a noble woman. Ruth is the noble woman. Ruth is the excellent virtuous wife. Ruth is the epitome of the Proverbs 31 woman. Now, let's recap from last week. What did we find out from last week? What we will recap for you, Judy. <laughs> last week, well, let's just recap the story so far. A man named Elimelech, my God is king, in the time of the judges where there was no king, takes his family and leaves the promised land, which he should have never done, and gone to the greener grass of Moab. There, because there's a famine in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means house of bread, and so he dies, leaves her a widow. Her two little baby boys die and leave the wife's widow. And so God providentially gets word back to Naomi that, hey, the famine's over in Bethlehem. The harvest is, is back. And so she decides to go back. They've been there like probably over 10 years. And she tells her daughters-in-law, you don't want to come with me. I'm cursed of God. It's, I, I'm, I'm not a good person to be around. Um, I'm, I'm bitter. God has dealt, uh, you know, dealt severely with me. Go back and find some husbands. And Orpah, kissing, you know, her, her mother-in-law is very sad, but she goes. And her name means back of the neck. What does Ruth do? Ruth clings to Naomi and, and then pledges her faith. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So we see Ruth's um, conversion, if you will. She confesses faith in the God of Israel, and she returns. So what was the key word we looked at last week? What was that Hebrew word? You remember? Shuv, which means what? It means turn, but it actually means repent. So Ruth turned to, Ruth turned away from Moab and turned towards the God of Israel. That was her repentance. And so they come back, and if you remember, what does Naomi's name mean? Pleasant. Lovely. And when she gets back, all the ladies come up to her and say, Naomi's back! And what does she say? Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Which means what? Bitter. bitter. I'm a bitter woman because of what's happened. Don't call, me, don't call me lovely. But then we were left with the cliffhanger because look at the very end of chapter 1. Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. When? At the beginning of the barley harvest. Just so happens that the right time they come back is at the barley harvest. God is orchestrating events to help redeem Naomi's situation. So let's go into chapter 2, and let's read verses 1 and 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, is this a coincidence? Just so happens that there's a relative of who? Elimelech. Elimelech. But notice how the storyteller, the narrator, describes Boaz. He is what? A worthy man. An excellent man. A noble man. It's no surprise that this is the same Hebrew word used back in Proverbs 31 when it spoke of the excellent wife. An excellent wife who can find? Boaz was an excellent man. He was a virtuous man. He was a a noble man. Now, it does in some sense mean that he was financially stable. He was a man of good standing. He was a man of prominence in Bethlehem. But the way that Hebrew word really means is that he he was a godly man. He was a man of substance. He was a man of character. It speaks more of his character than of his wealth. So what I want to do is I want to focus in on profiles and godliness. You see two godly people here in chapter 2, Ruth and Boaz. So the question we've got to ask tonight is, what is a godly man and what is a godly woman when we look at Ruth and Boaz? Because what does Proverbs 31 say? An excellent, virtuous, noble wife who can find? Don't you want an excellent, virtuous, noble wife? Okay? We find that Boaz is a virtuous, noble man. Okay? So we're going to see two people here that are virtuous, noble, excellent, God-fearing people. Now, let's talk about the structure of Ruth again. How many chapters? Four. How many acts? Four acts. Within each act, within each chapter, how many subplots are there? Three. Okay? So, subplot one starts with Ruth and Naomi kind of around the breakfast table in the house in Bethlehem. Um, Then 3 through 17 takes them out to the field during barley harvest. And then the final subplot brings them back to the house in Bethlehem. Now, in verse 2, it's interesting, Ruth the Moabite. Now, don't we know she's a Moabite? Ruth the Moabite. Why does the storyteller in verse 2 remind us that Ruth is a Moabite? Why does he have to do this? This is not new information. All through chapter 1, we know she's come from Moab. Why does he say she's a Moabite? Why does he add that bit of information there? Well, it serves to remind us that she's a foreigner. She's a stranger in a strange land. We're to wonder about her fate. Remember what I said last week? Will she be accepted? Will she find favor in this new society? Will she be the object of racial prejudice? Will she go hungry and be poor the rest of her life? But the ultimate question for Ruth the Moabite is this. Was it really worth all? Was it really worth it to forsake all in Moab to embrace the Lord of Israel? (laughs) See, that's where the rubber meets the road. She made the decision. She repented from Moab and turned to the Lord of Israel. She came back home to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And now she's in the land. And she's a foreigner. She's a widow. And she's a Moabite. And what's going to happen to her? And so we see some things about 
Ruth that are very, very interesting that really epitomize her as the Proverbs 31 excellent woman. Number one, the first thing we see about Ruth's noble character is that she takes initiative. Okay? What does she say? Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She doesn't sit around waiting for a government handout or for God to plop a job into her lap. What does she say? God's sovereign, so if he's going to take care of me, he's going to take care of me. So I'm just going to sit here and wait for him to take care of me. Can you have a high view of God's sovereignty and still get, you know, get your rear in gear and start getting some work done? Yes. Having a high view of God's sovereignty doesn't mean laziness. So she doesn't have this attitude, well, if God wants me to succeed in Bethlehem, he'll let me succeed. So I'm just going to kind of sit here and wait for things to happen. No, she takes initiative. She doesn't sit around. Now, what does she decide to go do? She's going to go glean in the fields. Now, you have to understand what was going on in the fields at that time. God, in his compassion for the poor people in the Old Testament times, for the poor, the foreigners, and the widow, so God's always had a heart for poor, foreigners, and widows. All throughout the Old Testament, look at that. Just do a study on the poor, the study on widows, the study on foreigners, God has always had compassion for them. And so God developed a welfare system to help the poor, the foreigners, and the widows. It wasn't a free handout with no strings attached. It actually required work. So it wasn't, hey, I'm going to go get a free government handout. It actually required them to work. What did they do? Well, you see it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let me just read to you the law that God prescribed to help the, flo- the, help the poor. Help the poor. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. This is a law that is given to Israel. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so picture a guy, like a reaper, and he would have a sickle in his right hand, and he would probably have, like, bend down, and he would cut, and cut, and cut, and he would pick up, you know, you have to pick up what you're cutting. What's going to fall down on the ground? Seeds. Seeds. Grain, stuff left over. Is he allowed to pick it up? He's supposed to leave it there. Why is he supposed to leave it there? So poor and sojourners and those that are disenfranchised, that don't have jobs, can come behind him and grab it. They have to do the work. They have to actually go behind him and actually do the hard work of picking up the, the kernels on the ground that were left over. That was to be gleaners of the reapers. Basically, it was like earning a living by recycling cans, if you will. So, that was the system that God used to help the sojourner, the poor, the foreigner. 
Again, it wasn't a government handout. You had to go. You had to get up. You had to go out early. You had to go get into the field. You had to actually do the hard labor to walk and bend down and pick it up and follow them most of the day. So you're pretty much doing the same type of work. You're not doing the heavy lifting as far as the, 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 the harvesting, but it's God's way of helping the poor. But notice what Ruth says. She says, I will go out and glean, and maybe I will find favor in someone's sight. Let me, verse 2, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain <clears throat> after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Literally, the word is grace. Maybe, just maybe, somebody will show me grace and give me a job. I'm a foreigner. I'm a widow. This is a man's world. A single woman going out to the field by herself. What's she going to find out there? Is God going to be merciful to me and get me a job? So Ruth embodies the woman in Proverbs 31. She's not lazy. She's proactive. She takes initiative to care for her family. Proverbs has a lot to say about laziness. We can talk about that later if we want to. Naomi doesn't protest. What does Naomi say? Go for it. Okay? So that's subplot one. They're around the breakfast table this morning, reading the paper, looking at the one ads. Ruth says, hey, there's a field out there. I think I'll go glean. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm a foreigner. I'm a Moabite, but maybe I'll find grace in somebody's eyes. And Naomi says, okay, go. Okay, now we come to subplot two, which takes us out to the field, the largest section here. Okay, so they're going to go out to the field. So let's read verses 3 through 17. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. And behold... Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of his reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that you are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward will be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. 
And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it to her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, verse 3, I kind of tipped my hand and gave you the translation there. There's a play on words in verse 3. The storyteller's kind of playing with us. She went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, the ESV says she happened to come to a part of the field. The NIV makes a good jab at it. As it turned out, in Hebrew it literally says, as luck would have it. Now let's just ask you a question. Is there such thing as luck? What theologically is going on here? What's going on? What is God? The whole theme of this story is what? God's invisible hand of grace. What is God doing? God is invisibly orchestrating events for her to show up at just the right place at just the right time so she would beat Elimelech. Of all the fields out there that she could have gone to, she could have gone to anybody's field. She didn't know anything. She could have just walked out there and said, I'm going to go there. And maybe that's what she did. But as it just so happened to be, she showed up at just the right time to Boaz's field. As my mom said, was this a quinky dinky Was this a coincidence? No, this is God sovereignly working things out for her to get there. Now, you need to understand how harvest worked in ancient fields in Israel at that time. The fields were parceled out between landowners. Not like we... How do you know somebody's land out here in northeastern Colorado? How do you know it's somebody's land? There is a barbed wire fence, right? There's a fence. Maybe even electric. So there's no open land anymore, is there? Everything has a fence, even if it's government land. Okay? Back then, there were no fences. There were just boundary markers, like maybe rocks. So you walk out there and there's just this giant patch of land with different fields next to each other owned by different landowners. So you had no idea whose field is what. You just go out there and all these fields. Now the landowners know. And so there's probably over 100 people working out in these fields. We don't know, but probably a lot. Do you think Ruth has a clue where she's going? She has no idea which field she's going to. She doesn't know boundary markers. She doesn't know who's Boaz's field. She just walks up to a field. And what does the author tell us? She just so happened, as luck would have it, as God orchestrated, she comes to the part belonging to Boaz. Now, what's going on here is what I call split-screen narrative. You guys know what split-screen is on a TV, on a movie? Two things going on at once. It's kind of confusing sometimes where the two things of action going on at the same time or they jump back and forth. That's kind of what's going on here. Um, there's, the, there's the omniscient, all-knowing narrator who gives us hints as far as what's going on. And then there's the people in the story that don't know what's going on. Does Ruth know what's going on? No. Does the narrator know what's going on? 
Yes, and he's giving us clues as to what's going on. So you're seeing both angles here. You're, you're getting clues from the narrator, giving us God's providential heavenly angle. And then you've got the earthly perspective of the characters in the story that really don't, like Ruth had no idea what was going on. She just showed up at a field. The narrator tells you, no, there's something deeper going on here. It wasn't just Ruth you know, showed up at a field. God was orchestrating for her to show up at the right field. And let me just ask you a question. Isn't this the way life is? Do we often see the invisible hand of God's grace in our lives? We don't see the secret working of God behind the scenes to orchestrate events and circumstances in our lives to bring about His will. Oftentimes, we are clueless as we go along. And then all of a sudden, we look back and realize God's fingerprints have been all over the situation. Anybody ever have one of those experiences? I have no idea how I got here. I have no idea what the plan was. And it was a really weird situation getting there. And a lot of weird things happen. I look back and it's like, oh, that was what God was doing. I've told this story before. Maybe you haven't heard it about my, um, my um, time in college. So I grew up in Texas before I moved to Colorado when I was 15. And as a, as a little Baptist boy in Texas, I always wanted to go to Baylor University. I, was, I always wanted to go to Baylor. I wanted to be a Baylor bear. Always wanted to go to Baylor. I don't know why. I just always wanted to go to Baylor. So um, my freshman year, packed up, drive from Colorado Springs all the way out to Baylor, to Waco, Texas. I get there, like, oh, I'm finally a Baylor bear. Everything's going to be awesome. Um, it's going to be just a wonderful experience. I'm going to have an awesome roommate. Well, they messed up my roommate situation, so I didn't get the roommate I originally thought I had. And so the roommate I had was kind of a partier. Um, and we didn't quite get along. Um, then there was just, it was terrible. It was just a terrible experience. I, I hated it. I dreaded it. And I wanted to come back home at semester. And so I did. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm there at Baylor, why is this happening to me? Why did God, I, this was God's plan, wasn't it? To take me to Baylor? And so I'm there and I hate it. And I come back at semester. And the plan coming back at semester, I had a girlfriend at the time. So that was one of the reasons I came, that was one of the reasons I came back. So I had, it wasn't Dawn. I had a girlfriend at the time, came back. And so the plan was, okay, I'll go to UCCS. I'll go to University of Colorado, Colorado Springs for that second semester and then I'll go to Oklahoma Baptist University, because that was my second choice. I'll go there in the fall. And so I start going to UCCS, and then um, I start getting involved in the campus ministry, um, go on a mission trip, and then I realize, you know what? I think, this is, I think God's calling me to stay here in Colorado Springs, not go off to OBU. Well, my girlfriend and I had planned our lives out. We were going to go off to OBU and go on this little thing and everything, and so... Um, I remember that summer telling her, I don't think I'm going to OBU. And she said, yes, you are going to OBU. That's our life plan. And I said, no, it's not. So we ended up breaking up that summer. <laughs> she went off to OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University. I stayed in Colorado Springs. And then that next year, I met Dawn. And then the rest is, I mean, the rest is history. But the point is, I look back on that and think, you know, that was a kind of a painful three months to be at Baylor, and I didn't understand all that God was doing. And in the time, when you're in the middle of it, did God send me a, a, a blinding light saying, this is my plan for you? Was there a booming voice from heaven saying, Sean, you're an idiot? 
Was there, <laughs> was there any of that, like, you know, was there a burning bush in my dorm saying, you know, thou shalt go back? None of that stuff was happening. You're in the middle of it, and you're wondering what's going on, and God is guiding your steps, and then you look back, and you're like, oh, okay. Didn't realize in the time God was doing that, but when I look back, it may have been uncomfortable for me, but this is the path God wanted me to go on. Sometimes you have to go on a circuitous, that's a big word, a What's circuitous mean? Um, a roundabout path in order to get where God wants you to be. And sometimes God orchestrates that. Okay? So one thing that you need to understand is that there's something markedly absent in the book of Ruth. For an Old Testament book. There's no stupendous miracles. There's no burning bushes. There's no pillars of smoke, pillars of fire. There's no voices from heaven. There's no supernatural parting of the waters. Think about this for a moment. Elimelech had two sons. And they both, all three of them died. Did God raise them from the dead in a miracle? Could God have raised them from the dead in a miracle? Yes. There's no healing. There's also a famine. Could God not have sent manna from heaven or like he fed the 5,000 in Jesus' time? Is there a burning bush telling Naomi to go back to, Jeru- go back to Bethlehem? No, as a matter of fact, God's voice is silent in the book of Ruth. God never directly speaks or says anything. But is God present? Just because God does not audibly speak, just because God does not give signs and wonders and burning bushes and all these bright lights, does that mean God's not working? Does that mean God's absent? For most of us, normal people, that's the way God operates with us. Isn't that not true? I haven't had any burning bush experience where God showed up in a burning bush. I've never heard God's audible voice. I've never seen manna come from heaven or water come out of a rock. But I can tell you, without all those miraculous happenings, God has worked in my life. And I bet you everybody here can say, I haven't had those stupendous things happen, but God has worked in my life. Okay? So here's a, here's a verse to, to memorize, Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You may have all the plans in the world that you want to do, and all the best intentions, and your whole life planned out, which is good. I'm not saying don't plan. But who's the one that's going to establish your steps? The Lord. Can God change plans? Can God change plans? <laughs> yes. And it's all part of God's sovereign will. Okay? And so what looks like a coincidence, what looks like something that's just a haphazard, Ruth showed up at a field. Well, no, God was orchestrating a divine appointment for her to show up at Boaz's field so that she could meet Boaz. We know it's the hand of God's grace. So in verse 4, what does it say? The ESV says, Behold, Boaz. We're introduced finally to Boaz. 
Does yours say behold? Why would you say behold, Boaz? Behold, that sounds like a play. Behold, like a Shakespeare. Behold. What is behold? What does the word behold mean? You don't have to really what the word behold means. It's, it's an old English word. What does behold mean? Look. Pay attention. It's not just to introduce them to us, but it's to make us to stop and pay attention. Actually, the way that could be translated in Hebrew, it could be, wouldn't you just know it? Wouldn't you just know who would show up at just the right time? Behold, it's Boaz. Coincidence? No. God orchestrating His sovereign plan. And as we begin to notice Boaz, he is a profile of a godly man. How does he greet his workers? What's the first thing he's, what's the first words out of Boaz's mouth when he comes and shows up as the foreman, as the boss to his workers? What does he say? The Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. Now, is that a platitude? God bless you. God be with you. I don't think it is. I think what he's doing is, is I think Boaz really wants a positive work environment for his employees. What we see here is a man who treats his employees with dignity and respect and is truly seeking their well-being. Okay, godly man here. Godly man. Let's make this real practical. The true test of a man is not how he acts at church when he's on his best behavior, but how he acts on the job site when the watching eyes of the pastor or church members are not on him. Elimelech. I mean, Boaz. The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now, Boaz notices something out of place, doesn't he? Hmm. <laughs> what does he say? Who's this young foreign woman that's new on the job site? I'm kind of catching her eye. Remember, this is a man's world. And Ruth is vulnerable. She's foreign. She's taken the risk and the initiative to go work at the field, and she has no idea what's going to happen to her. And so let's look at her humility. If Boaz is a godly man who treats his employees well, who wants the well-being of his employees, let's look at Ruth. First thing we saw about Ruth is she took initiative. Now we're going to see her humility. Okay, And we see this in three very specific ways. First of all, she asks permission to glean. What does she say? Verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Please let me. Now, as we saw earlier, this was a law of God in the land. For God to provide for the sojourner and the poor, Levitical law, it was a right of a poor person to do that. She didn't need to ask. She could have just gone in and started gleaning and not asking anyone. So she's saying, please, or she's saying, please let me glean. 
So she doesn't come in as this bold, brash woman demanding her rights. She, at the very beginning, seeks to be humble, and she asks permission. Okay? So, is Ruth a cocky, brash woman? I'm here. I'm the Moabite. I'm here to glean. Now, some women may act that way, but how does she act? I know it's the law, probably because Naomi told her. Naomi would have known it was the law. She doesn't have to ask permission. She is humble. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What are they going to see? When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So how, I'm not being chauvinistic here, so please don't take it that way. What the Bible says is truly beautiful in a woman. I mean, it's, a, women, it's not saying don't do your hair, don't put on makeup, don't, don't put on nice clothes. It's not saying that. We're not going to walk around with, you know, you're not going to walk around with braided hair and no makeup. And, you know, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying true beauty. The virtuous woman, the noble woman, the true beauty of a woman is what? The gentle, quiet spirit and the conduct of that woman. And what does Ruth embody? She says, please, let me glean. She asked permission. Secondly, she knew her rightful place. What does she say? Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Uh, it was to be behind the reapers. And then thirdly, what do we see about her? She had a tremendous work ethic. How does she work? Verse 7, She came and she continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. She's working hard. She's not lazy. She worked a long stretch of time without much rest. Um, no jobs beneath her. She's not lazy. She takes the initiative she is a humble, gentle servant that takes initiative. We looked at this a few weeks ago when we were doing Philippians, but Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, Ruth does that, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this has impressed Boaz. Because think about Boaz for a moment. What did I say last week? What, what were Moabite women equated with in the Israelite mind? Brash, pagan, sexually seductive women. 
And here is probably Boaz's first experience with a Moabite woman. So what's he expecting when he hears she's a Moabite? Oh, a Moabite. She's probably some loosey-goosey, what we talked about last week. <laughs> she's not a respectable woman. But he says, wow, she's respectful. She's gracious. She's working hard. She's not demanding her rights. Well, I'm paying attention. This, this has got my attention. Look at verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep close. It's a little bit of a tenderness there. Listen, my daughter. Don't venture off to another field. Stay in my field. And keep close to who? The other young women. Keep close. It's literally the same word as cling that we saw back in 114 where Ruth clung to Naomi. In other words, stay attached to these girls. What's Boaz doing? He's elevating a pagan Moabite to a new status saying, okay, you're now one of the Israelite girls. You're one of us. Stay close to the girls. I am not going to treat you as a foreigner. I'm not going to treat you as a Moabite. You are a Israelite. Stay. Now, if Ruth was marked by humility, Boaz's chief character trait is graciousness. And we're going to see this in two very specific ways. First of all, he provides for Ruth. doesn't have to do this. Where does he allow her to reap? Go reap among the young girls. And then what does he say? Verse 8. Let your eyes be on the field that you're reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? We'll get to that in just a moment. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Okay. You may think, well, what's the deal? That she has access to the water cooler. In those days, foreigners had to go all the way back to the well at the gate of Bethlehem to get water. So if you're a foreigner, if you were thirsty, where would you have to go? If you're out in the field, I have to trek it all the way back into Bethlehem. i got to go back to the well in Bethlehem. i got to draw water and i got to drink there and I'm missing out on work here. But what does he tell her to do? Go drink water from the jugs that are brought out by the workers. She's given access to the water jugs. He could have very easily, Boaz could have said, you know what, go back to Bethlehem, go back where the rest of the poor people go, the foreigners, and get well from the city. No, you can go out and drink from the water jugs. Secondly, not only does he provide for her, but he protects her. He protects her. What does he do? He charges the young men not to touch her. Now, you could say this is the first anti-harassment policy we see implemented. The first sexual harassment policy. Now, you think, well, what, what could be done out in daylight? Not much could be done out in the daylight as far as sexual activity in broad daylight, but they could harass her out in the field, Boaz is off doing something. 
She's out there as a young woman. She's a Moabite anyway, so she probably likes it. They're probably thinking, she's a Moabite. They could joke with her. They could harass her. They could shove her. They could say, hey, go back and get water. I mean, we know Boaz said you could have the water jugs, but go back to the, to the well. But he protects her. Now, here's an irony in Ruth. Ordinarily, the daily drawing of water was resp- the responsibility of women. How many times in the Old Testament do women draw water at a well? Who's drawing the water here? Look very closely. The young men. The young men perform the task. So here the custom is reversed. Instead of a foreign woman drawing water for male Israelites, this Moabite foreigner was welcome to drink water drawn by these male Israelites. That's interesting. Now, Here's why I want you to understand the importance of of Boaz protecting her. Don't let the young men touch her. We might not at first glance understand what's going on here, but I want to remind you of the context of Ruth. How does the story begin? What is the very first verse of Ruth 1? In the days when the judges judged. How does the book of Judges end? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So this is a time of moral confusion, chaos. It's not a good time in Israel's history. If everybody's doing right in their own eyes and she's out in a field by herself as a, as a woman, a foreigner, there could be some things that can happen to her. Because if everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, when Boaz isn't looking, what can the young men do? You don't know. Now, Boaz doesn't have to do this. Is he obligated at all to do this for Ruth? No, he's under no obligation whatsoever to provide for this Moabite pagan woman. He doesn't have to protect her. He doesn't have to provide for her. No one's going to hold him accountable if he doesn't. As a matter of fact, it's probably a time where everyone was trying to find loopholes around God's law. But there's one man that stands out among all of these crazy people running around in the time of the judges. Boaz is a godly man who is taking care of Ruth. He obeys God's word. Now, also, think about this. To allow Ruth to glean after the harvesters was not financially savvy. He would lose money on this. You can imagine how greedy people were, especially after 10 years of famine, and now they're being blessed with harvest. What do you think Boaz was... What do you think most people at that time were thinking? Bottom line. I cannot lose... I cannot have any profit margin loss. I have got to make sure that the harvest is 100% taken in. He didn't have to have her go... Because if she goes right behind the reapers, what is she going to get? She's probably going to get a whole lot more than just waiting for it to be done and then come and glean. So she's got a special status. He doesn't have to do this. He was the top dog... He could have called the shots without any accountability, but what does he do? He shows, number one, he submits himself to God's law for the gleaners, and he shows tremendous grace. Now, we see Ruth's character come into play again here in verse 10. What does verse 10 say? She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take note of us of me, since I am a foreigner. 
She asks a very good question. What's the question? Why me? Of all the people, Boaz, you could have shown grace to, I'm a Moabite, I'm a foreigner, I'm a widow, I'm a nobody, and you are showing me grace. What was her prayer back in verse 2? Go back and read verse 2. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. What's her prayer before she goes out? Maybe somebody will show me grace. Has somebody shown her grace in big time ways? And what's she saying? I don't understand why you're doing this to me, Boaz. I'm, I'm undeserving. I don't understand it. Now, she's very different than most people today. What do we often expect from people? You better show me grace. You better give me preferential treatment. We're outright astonished and resentful if we don't get our way. How dare they not pay attention to me and give me what I want? I'm a Moabitess, and I'm here. I am woman, hear me roar. I'm here. I'm Ruth. I need to get my, you know, she, she doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, she does the exact opposite. She's like, why in the world are you, sh I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said, I hear me, woman, I'm more. That's kind of like a, isn't that like a, a uh, that offend anybody? If it did, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. I don't think it would have. I don't think, I just thought, like, did I offend somebody by saying, so you understand what I'm saying about Ruth. She could have been like, man. But she, she humbles herself. And she knows that she doesn't deserve the treatment she's getting. Now, there's a pun going on. A lot of times you don't catch these puns or these play on words um, in the Hebrew language. But she, she says, you've noticed me a foreigner. The word for notice <clears throat> is the same word for foreigner. They come from the same root word. So it literally could be translated, you've noticed the unnoticed. You have noticed the unnoticed. Aren't you thankful God notices the unnoticed? So he's done two things. He's comforted her and he's spoken to her heart. Look at verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. You've comforted me. You've comforted me. Why is she comforted? She's probably scared. I came all the way out here to Bethlehem. I did not know what I was going to find. I'm a foreign widow. I've come out to this field. I don't know what's expected of me. And I'm blown away by your kindness. And what you've done to me has brought true comfort to my heart. And you've spoken kindly to me. You didn't push me aside. You didn't say, why are you out here, you Moabite girl? You've spoken kindly to me, even though I don't deserve any of this. The word comforted really means that Boaz had met a real need that had changed her life situation. Now, there's a double entendre in the word spoke kindly. Ruth is somewhat saying that Boaz has not only encouraged her with his graciousness, but it was also used when a man would romantically woo a woman. You've spoken kindly to me. Hmm. This is a foreshadowing of what might happen. Is there a small blossoming seed of romance going on? Why, yes, there is. You've spoken 
kindly to me. She's, in a way, dare I say, no, she's, I didn't hear what you said. She's, in a way, flirting in a good way. Okay, she's, I don't think she's being flirtatious, but I think she's like, hmm, there's an attraction going on here, okay? Um, so there's a little small hint that the, that the writer gives us there. Now, it's also, what does she call herself? You've spoken kindly to your servant. What does Ruth call herself? She calls herself a servant. Now, there are many different Hebrew words she could have used for servant that the, the, the storyteller could have used, but it's a special word in the Hebrew that means female servant of the lowest rank. I'm the lowest of the lowest servants. Okay? She knows her place. She's gracious. She's humble. She's blown away that Boaz has shown her such kindness. But not only do we see the graciousness of Boaz just protecting her and providing for her, but we also see some hospitality here. In verse 14, he does something that's really shocking if you would have read the story. He invites her to the table to eat lunch. What does he say? At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. She sat beside the, reaper, beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Now, he broke a lot of taboos doing this for an Israelite male in that culture. First of all, what barrier did he break by inviting her to sit at the table with him? Social barrier. She's a nobody. She's a gleaner. She, she's a nobody that's invited to come eat with him. Sitting down for a meal in that Hebrew culture meant that you were highly respected, you had dignity, you were coming under the protection of the host while eating the meal. What does he do by inviting her to eat? He's saying to Ruth, you are no longer a social outcast, you are somebody. Come sit at my table. But not only that, not only the social barrier of her being a poor gleaner, there's the Racial barrier. Who is she? She's a Moabite. Yes. Boaz is not a racist. He's not prejudiced. He's a worthy. He's a worthy man. And he says, "Come sit at my table." Does this not remind you of how Jesus treated the woman at the well in John four, who had many husbands? Not only that, what does, Ruth, what does Boaz do? He serves Ruth. Dip your bread in the wine and let me pass you some roasted grain. What does he do? So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. He passed to her. You don't quite get the English the Hebrew from our English, literally the word means he piles a handful of roasted grain on her so she has more than enough. So much so that she has a doggy bag she can take home with her. What does it say there? She had some left over. She had a doggy bag left over, a to-go box. Because Boaz gave her so much. 
But he takes it one step further. I mean, think about the unthinkable. Boaz says, Ruth, you're going to come sit at my table. I'm going to treat you as not like a foreigner, not like a poor person, but you are going to be a woman of dignity. I'm going to serve you. And I'm going to bless you. And then I'm going to do something extremely generous. Look at verses 15 and 16. What does he say to her? Extreme generosity. What does he say in verse 15? When she rose to glean, so she, she's like, okay, i got to get back to work. got to go back to gleaning. What does he say? Let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. Now what's going on here? He provides protection. This time he tells the young man himself, She's given permission to pretty much what? Take whatever she wants from the sheaves. He was granting her access between the sheaves. Gleaners were normally restricted from this area because the landowners were greedy and they wanted anything that dropped for themselves. And sometimes you couldn't trust gleaners because they may secretly take from that area. This was a more where more of the crop was being harvested, he's like, go over to that area and, and take from that area. It's generous. It's, it's above and beyond what Deuteronomy would require because the law back in Deuteronomy 24, 19, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. You want to know a psalm that personifies Boaz? Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. He's being very generous. And so what does verse 17 tell us? She gleaned in the field until evening. Let's just suppose it's summertime. Let's say she goes until 7, 30, 8 o'clock. She beat out what she gleaned. And aha, it was about an ephah of barley. And you're thinking, ah, oh, I know what an ephah of barley is. I don't. I had to look it up. What's an ephah? What exactly is an ephah? 30 pounds, it's what? Three-fifths of the bushel. That helps me even more. Actually, it's about 30 pounds. That's a lot of barley in one day. 30 pounds. Like, so think of a 30-pound bag. Like, how would she carry all that back? 30 pounds, like in a gunny sack or in a burlap sack? I don't know. She's probably a strong woman carrying 30 pounds over her back. Now... What it means, though, in economic terms is this. She, in one day, she collected the equivalent of at least a half a month's wages in one day. What was her prayer that day? Lord, may somebody, may somebody, somebody be gracious to me. What does she find? She has been extremely blessed. And the story centers on Ruth's question to Boaz. Why have you shown grace to me? I'm a nobody. I'm a widow. I'm a foreigner. I'm new to Bethlehem. 
is this the way you always treat Moabite women? Go back to verse 11 and 12 and let's look at the answer. What got Boaz's attention? Was it Ruth's looks? Maybe. Was it her work ethic? Maybe. Was it her humility? Probably. But look at verses 11 and 12. The, the author tells us what the reasoning is. Verse 10, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Verse 11, here's the answer. Boaz answered, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What has really caused Boaz to notice Ruth? Is it her womanly attractiveness? Is it her personality? Now, those things are important for men and should be when finding true love, but what really attracts Boaz to Ruth is her salvation, her repentance. Her testimony. What's, what's Ruth's testimony? I was a pagan, Moabite, foreign God-worshipping woman in a pagan land, and I left all that to come embrace the God of Israel. I've left it all. I've taken up my cross daily to follow Jesus. I've, I've given it up. She, so what's Boaz amazed by? I'm attracted to this woman's salvation experience. Okay. I wish there were young men in this room that I could talk to. What should be the primary thing young men should find attractive in women? Their looks? Their faith in Christ. You need to be captivated by how God is working or has worked in the person that you are going to marry. And what captures Boaz's attention? Everything that happened to you back in Moab and how you came here, that's all been told to me, and I'm, I'm drawn to that. You've had a true conversion experience where you've left pagan idolatry to embrace the God of Israel, and I find that to be captivating. Your relationship with Christ is what has drawn me to you. Ruth. You see, Boaz understands something here. He gives a beautiful picture of Ruth's salvation experience. What does he say to her in verse 12? The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. How does he describe her salvation? Ruth, you are a little helpless eaglet who has come to the God of Israel and taken refuge under his wings. He talks about her salvation in terms of coming under the wings of the God of Israel, which the psalmist says in Psalm 57.1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Psalms, God is pictured as an eagle that protects his children. You come under the wings of the eagle. 
And Ruth has come from pagan land of Moab to come to Israel. And, and, and Boaz says, your salvation experience is like a poor, helpless little eaglet coming and finding shelter under the wings of Yahweh. And what does Boaz pray for her? What does Boaz wish for her? That the Lord would repay and reward Ruth. Now, this doesn't mean that Ruth would somehow earn her salvation and that God would repay her because somehow, you know, God's obligated to do that. It's like salvation by works. What, what he's doing here is he's saying that God would bless, God would show mercy because she sought refuge under his wings. She's banked on his protection and salvation as better than anything else. She's not earned this. What Boaz is saying is, listen, God's going to show you grace. God has shown you grace. And the picture of it is you coming under his wings. You were a poor, helpless widow in Moab who left everything to come to the God of Israel. And he's taken care of you. He has protected you. He has, he's brought you in. And I'm the instrument he's using right now to bless you. So Boaz must understand something that's going on here. Now, I don't think Boaz, what's, 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 what's he say? You're going to get a full reward. The Lord's going to reward you. Does Boaz know at this point that he's actually the reward? Now, we know how the story ends, right? He marries Ruth and they have a child. At this point, does he know? Boaz was going to be the reward to Ruth, ultimately. In the story itself, the story ends... With what? How does God reward Ruth? She marries Boaz. They have a child. Everything, nice, neat, quite clean, tidy ending. Everyone lives happily ever after. The end. Hallmark. But I want you to think about reward for a moment. Let's make this personal to us. As great as Boaz is a reward to Ruth, Jesus is our great reward. Who's our reward when we get to heaven? Christ. So I want you to think about this as we move forward. Jesus is the greater Boaz. As great as Boaz is as an earthly man, he doesn't hold a candle to the greater Boaz, the greater, the greater kinsman redeemer, Jesus. Jesus is the greater worthy man. Who is Jesus? He's our protector. Who's Jesus? He's our provider. Who's Jesus? He's welcomed us into his family. We are all Ruth. We are all pagan, outsiders, far from God, who have been transformed by his grace, and we've come to Christ. And what has Christ done for us? He's protected us. He's provided us. He's taken us in the shelter of his wings. He has poured out his grace upon us, so we should look back at Jesus and be like Ruth and say, Why me? Why have you shown grace to me? You owe me nothing, Lord. All I can do is just cast myself at your mercy. And what attitude does God want us to have towards Him and towards each other? 1 Peter 5, 5-7 Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. 
so God wants us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. He'll exalt us at the proper time. Now, let's just stop and talk about this verse in 1 Peter for a moment. Why is verse 7 there right after humility? What's it say? Cast, they'll, they'll, I mean, probably memorize it. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. What makes you anxious? A lot? Okay. When you are anxious and you are fearful and you have cares, do you tend to become more selfish and prideful or do you tend to become more humble? Do we trust in God during times of anxiety? Uh, it's interesting how these verses are tied together. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves. Be humble and cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I'd have to think harder about that passage of Scripture. Why those two? Why is casting your cares right on the heels of being humble? I'd have to meditate upon that and think about that more. Think, somebody think about that this week and come back with an answer next week why those two verses are there together. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we're going to get to Act 3 next week. I mean, Scene 3 next week. We're... Ruth goes back, and Naomi freaks out. Came back with a big doggy bag. What's going on here? Something must have happened out there on the fields. Yeehaw! Let's, let's, let's put together a scheme here. Um, but I think the important thing to remember from this passage is that... Remember how I told you that there, there's two different ways of looking at the story of Ruth? You've got the story itself. What's in the story itself, like just at the ground level? You've got two godly people that are meeting up under God's sovereign providence. You've got a humble woman who takes initiative. She's gracious. She's humble. She, she doesn't really understand why she's receiving grace. You've got Boab, who's the godly man. He's taking care of her. He's providing for her. Just at face value, you look at that and say, oh, that's just a great picture of two godly people. Just at face value. But you step back and say, okay, what's this a picture of? Boaz is a picture of Jesus, and Ruth is a picture of us. We are the undeserving, outside, lost, faraway people who've repented and come to Christ, and we find Him as a gracious Savior who protects us and provides for us and, and gets us under the shadow of His wings so that we will forever have Him as our reward. It's a greater picture. So you've got to look at it at the face value level of what's going on in the story, but you've got to step back and say, what does this tell us about Jesus? Because he's the greater Boaz. He's the greater glory. 